sometimes when I go to other countries or other locations in the United States, one of the interesting things that happens to me is, is people who I've never met will repeat a story about me because they've listened to the tapes. And, they, and that's one of the things people remember would be some of the personal stories that I tell. But I've got one to tell you this morning, and I'm glad my wife is not in here. She has never heard this story. This is not a confession, but it's the first time I've ever told it. Even my daughter has not heard this story. Back in the mid-60s, it's not what you think. Back in the mid-60s, I set the Dallas record for the 50-yard dash for eight-year-olds. I did. I assume the record's been broken by now, but it was a city record in Dallas, 7.1 seconds. I ran barefoot in a gymnasium, set the record, but it didn't start on that March day. It actually started several years before. When I was over at my grandmother's house one day, and I was out in the front yard running up and down the sidewalk. My dad came out, and he said, what you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to be fast. I want to be the fastest kid in school. He said, well, okay, well, what do you intend to do to get there? I said, well, I'm just going to run. He said, well, do you have a plan? I said, well, no, not particularly. I just have an objective. I want to be the fastest kid in my school. He said, okay, well, let's sit down and let's formulate a plan and a a direction for you and and maybe a road map as how you might get there. And let's set some goals. And so he marked off 50 yards in front of my grandmother's house and had his just regular Timex watch with the thing that goes on clicking even if it takes a whooping or whatever the phrase is. (laughs) And he would time me out in the front yard, and we set goals, and we developed this whole outline as to how I would end up becoming the fastest kid in my class. Dad taught me that a life should be organized around order and structure. Now, that was probably the German coming out in him, but he felt like I should have order and structure in my life, and that the things that I chose to do should revolve around purpose. Over the course of my life, I've gone through a great many changes in direction and purpose. It's no longer my purpose in life to be the fastest runner in the room. I think there's already one that's going to be able to take that sit here in front of me over here. I don't intend to do a marathon or, a, or an Ironman competition. My body is past all that. But we all have purposes in our life. We all have directions that we need to go. And in order to really accomplish that, we need to have some structure. In our life, we cannot be disorganized. My goals are no longer to achieve in the realm of athletics or get good grades in school because I'm not in school anymore. But I still have a structure and a meaning and a purpose in my life. I suppose some people get to where they're going by rambling, just kind of wandering around and get there eventually. But I would rather go there with purpose. It's my view that it's difficult to accomplish anything that's really meaningful in life if one's life is characterized by disorder or confusion. It can be done, but it's a lot more difficult. One of the characteristics of our increasingly postmodern world is that it's become more random, more confused, and more disorderly. You remember the old Barbara Mandrell song, I Was Country Before Country Was Cool? As we've been considering the Corinthian situation, it seems as though they were postmodern before postmodernism was cool. They had the randomness and the disorder and the confusion down already centuries before postmodernism was taught in England or back in the United States. Confusion, disorderliness, and randomness in worship services appears to have been the norm 
in Corinth, rather than the exception. Over the last few weeks that we've spent together, we've observed a failure of love in the Corinthian church, which had manifested itself in pride and selfishness leading to disunity. The disunity was severely damaging interpersonal relationships in the church. But in chapter 14, we also have learned that that disunity was manifesting itself in worship that was less than God-honoring. I attended a worship service a few years ago in another country. The country's not important, but I think it illustrated this concept perfectly, actually. People were extremely nice. I want to say that up front. They were so welcoming to us when we came in. But the service itself was enormously chaotic. I and the rest of the team were sitting on the front row, and we were awaiting our part of the service, and the music began, and people started to sing. But I noticed maybe only a third of the people in this auditorium were listening or paying any attention at all to the music leader. There were children that were running and playing, and I know they were calling that worship, but it was really just running and playing because they weren't paying a bit of attention. They were just having a good time like kids do. I don't blame the kids. But they were coming and circling the worship leader. They were twirling these things around and jumping and laughing. And actually, I took my camera out and I started filming it because I thought no one would believe me. <laughs> I, I do have proof of this. I felt bad for the music leader because he was really ministering as, as well as he could possibly minister. It's not the easiest thing to do. It, it, it's not the easiest thing to lead music. But he was doing the best he could. But nobody was paying attention. There were just as many people talking among themselves as there were people that were singing the songs. I was wondering if the kids were going to continue to circle the podium while the message was going on. Thankfully, they didn't. They left. But it was extremely chaotic. It was extremely disorderly. It was extremely random. And my thought was, the thought that actually comes up in our passage today, I wonder what it would have been like for someone who didn't know Christ, for someone who was not a believer in the Lord Jesus, to have entered that service and that be the very first Christian worship service that they had ever attended. I wonder what kind of idea they would have gotten about Christianity. Maybe, just perhaps, they might have thought we were all a bunch of nuts. If that's all you knew, maybe that's the conclusion that you would come to. It would have been a pretty big turnoff to enter a worship service like that. Worship is supposed to be about God. It's not supposed to be about us. We'll see today also that we're supposed to be edified by what happens here today. We're to leave here changed. We're to leave here more mature, hopefully, even if it's only incrementally than what we were when we came in. But worship is about God. The best thing that we can say for chaotic worship is that it's immature worship. Unless you think that the issue of structure in worship is just a matter of personal taste, as a lot of things are in worship, frankly. Structure is important. This kind of disorderly worship that's taking place in Corinth as we enter into their world in chapter 14, that's what the Apostle Paul is arguing against here in chapter 14, is this whole kind of random, chaotic, disorderly worship. It ought not to be done. If you'll open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, but yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. The context in this chapter is the pursuit of love in corporate worship. So the specific 
area of thinking in view here is thinking about worship. Mature thinking in worship will result in something that's not only God-centered, but that is loving. That puts the interest of someone else above our own. And loving worship is that kind of worship that praises God while at the same time edifying God's children. Twofold. Praises God and edifies God's children. There are three verses in the final half of the chapter from verses 20 on where Paul presents the big picture idea of what he's saying here. And then in specifics, he will apply it in the rest of the chapter to what's going on in Corinth. But there's a big picture idea that, it, that involves us today. Sometimes we forget as we go back into an ancient text that it has very real meaning for today's audience, or it wouldn't be in this ancient text. It wouldn't be part of the Word of God. Let's do this this morning. I want to consider the overriding principles first here, and then move on to the specific situation that was occurring in Corinth, and then finally we'll reflect upon what this might mean to a 21st century audience. The overriding timeless principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is that we are to pursue love in all of the interactions of life including worship. We're to pursue love in all of life's interactions, including the interaction of worship. So we could ask reasonably, okay, and how does this work out? What does this look like? When pursuing love for God in worship, the answer is pretty straightforward. God is the object of our worship. God is the focus of our worship. Our praise is directed toward Him. And the more we know of God, the deeper our expression of our love for Him will be when we gather together in worship. We will sing more joyfully. We will pray reverently. We will give liberally of the resources that God has first given to us. And we will concentrate carefully on the reading and on the exposition of God's Word. Corporate worship is exercised in a group by definition. So how is love exercised in corporate worship? Let all things be done for edification. Now this is in the context of corporate worship. Let all things be done for edification. This principle is valid for all areas of life. But again, here in this chapter, he's narrowed it down to corporate worship. Whatever takes place in worship, in addition to praising God, should result in the edification or the building up of the worshipers. And not just for some in attendance. It should result in the edification of everybody. Love is an emotion that wills the highest and the best for someone else. For others, if love is to be pursued in the context of worship, we must forever keep this principle in the forefront of our thinking. And what should this God-honoring, worshiper-edifying worship look like? Now let's go down to verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The contrast is between Akatastasia, which is translated confusion here in the New American Standard, 
Some of your translations may read disorder or some similar term. Those are absolutely fine. But the contrast is between confusion or disorder and irene or peace. Since akatastasia is being contrasted with irene here, irene or the word for peace probably means more than just a cessation of hostilities. It also carries the meaning of being harmonious. Have you ever thought about the term harmonious in our worship? We think about the term harmony in our interpersonal relationships. We certainly want to have harmony in our marriages. We want to have harmony in our friendships. Well, Paul says we should have harmony in our worship services. The choice then is between disorder in worship or confusion in worship or randomness in, in worship and harmony in worship. Harmony is the quality of forming a pleasing and consistent whole. In principle, then, God-honoring worship will be focused upon God with a view toward the building up of all of those in attendance and take place in an environment of harmony and structure, not confusion and disorder. Now, how is this playing out in the Corinthian context? That's the principle, the overriding principle for all of us. For all time, the one that we're going to apply to our church as well, God-honoring worship will be focused upon God with a view toward the building up of all those in attendance and take place in an environment of harmony and structure, not confusion and disorder. So what about the Corinthian situation? How is that playing out for them? Well, let's read the whole, whole context here, beginning in verse 20 down through verse 33. We want harmony, but they weren't having it in Corinth. Listen to these words. Brethren, beginning in verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sight not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. If, therefore, the whole church should assemble together and all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it shall be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and then let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. And let him speak to himself and to God. And let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn, and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Tongues, if you'll recall, were a sign primarily to unbelieving Israel that judgment 
was on the way. It should have been motivation for Jews to repent and place their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. That was the idea, the whole concept of speaking in tongues in a first century context. It was a sign that had been prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 28, that when Jews saw the nation being spoken to by foreign invaders, that they were to realize that they had messed up pretty badly. That was part of the judgment that was coming upon both the northern kingdom and then second, the southern kingdom. Well, the Assyrians and the Babylonians didn't give them the gospel with their words, but they preached the judgment of God upon the nation Israel by their actions. They were very severe actions. So God used these people to speak to his people. And so now in a first century context, when Jewish non-Christians who had rejected Jesus as Messiah start to hear people speaking in foreign languages that they didn't know, that should have been a wake-up call from them. They should have reckoned back to Isaiah 28. And if they knew their Old Testament, they would have reckoned back to Isaiah 28 and said, well, wait a minute. Judgment must be coming. When this starts happening, judgment's coming. I need to get on the ball. And I need to pay attention. And I need to consider my eternal destiny. Now, they still needed to be given, given the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe sometimes so a person would be speaking in tongues and they would say something like, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Maybe they would give some evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. Maybe they would talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ when they were speaking in tongues and it was being interpreted so that someone could understand it. But if not, at least it would get their attention and someone else could come along with a gift of love for them and let them know that God loved them so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. I was talking to some people not too long ago that were the Jewish faith. And their idea was that Christians hated Jews. And I said, for goodness sakes, I worship a Jew. Jesus was Jewish. Of course Christians don't hate Jews. Now maybe some do, but they're not, not functioning within Christianity when they do it. That's outside of Christianity. It's foreign to anything that Jesus taught. The Apostle Paul was Jewish. Most of the New Testament was written by Jewish people. So no... Jesus was a Jew. He was the Messiah that was offered to Israel. Unfortunately, many Jews at the time rejected him. But the message is the same for Jew or Gentile. When a Philippian jailer asked the Apostle Paul so long ago, what do I need to do to be saved? The Apostle Paul didn't say, listen, turn your life around and apologize for beating me last night. Join the church in Philippi and give all the money you can possibly afford to give to that church. Show up every week. Serve in any way you can, even if you don't like the way you've been asked to serve. Serve and then believe in the Lord Jesus. No, he didn't say that. If you listen to a lot of modern day preachers, if you enter into some churches, it almost sounds as though they think Paul would have said that. But he didn't. He preached God's message to God's people so that, so that those that Christ came to save would be saved. And he offered salvation to all, whether Jew or Gentile. Jesus is offering salvation to all. No matter what part of the world you live in, no matter what your skin color, Jesus died for your sins. So the Apostle Paul answered simply to that question, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus and you'll be saved. Now, there are really only two kinds of people in the world, it seems to me, maybe three. There are the people that recognize that they have a need that they can't meet. And there's no way they could ever meet it, so they humbly place their faith in Jesus Christ to save them and rescue them from their sins and to grant them eternal life. 
Then there's another group of people, or most of the people that we meet today. They still are placing their faith in something, but they're placing their faith often in themselves to be good enough to maybe one day earn God's favor. Paul knocks that right out of the park when he said, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All of us. None of us reaches the heavenly standard that we must reach in order to have eternal life. But some people think that that's what they're doing. So there's a whole part of the world that thinks, if there is a God, then maybe I can live the kind of life that God would approve of, and then when I die, I can go to heaven. The Bible says, nice try, but it's not going to work. If you can get to heaven based upon your good works, Christ died for nothing. All that business on the cross was for nothing. If we could get to heaven on our good works, it doesn't work that way. I almost said I wish it did, but I don't wish it did. Because you can never have one moment of comfort in your life if you think that that's how you're going to get to heaven. is by being as good as you possibly can because you'd never know if you were good enough, would you? You could never know when you went to sleep at night if you were good enough that if something happened to you and God took you before the morning as that children's prayer goes, that you would go to heaven. You can never know. The only comfort is in the first option. Recognizing that we have a need and recognizing that Jesus met that need. And by simple faith, it's a matter of grace on God's part, but our part is faith, just trusting Him. Sounds so easy, and it is for us because it was very challenging for God. He gave up everything so that we might make that simple decision. And then there's the third category of person I didn't mention a moment ago. That's the person who doesn't believe there's God at all. And they're, boy, you're really taking your chances with that one. There's too much evidence for the existence of God in this world for me to hold that. I'm after truth, after all. I'm not a preacher of the Christian message because it seemed like the thing to do or I get my grins from it. I do feel fulfilled by it. But I'm doing this because I believe it's the truth, the absolute truth. So when an unbeliever would come into a Corinthian worship service and see all this chaos, Paul says, stop that because they're going to think you're crazy. And it's not doing anything at all for their eternal destiny. You're running them away. You see, the first first image of Christ that most non-Christians get is of you, from you. They see Christ through us. And if they see people that are acting like knuckleheads, in all kind of disorderly worship, what must they think of God? God is a God of order, not a God of disorder. He's He's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace and harmony. So we need to remember that about tongues first and foremost, that they were assigned primarily to unbelieving Israel. There was a second thing that was happening, though, that was a bit chaotic in the church at Corinth, and it wasn't just this legitimate speaking in tongues that began on the day of Pentecost and then ended, I believe, when the canon of Scripture was completed and then circulated and had a chance to move throughout the world. But there were also people that were speaking in some sort of unintelligible language, not in a known language like tongues would have been, while praying to God that Paul makes it very clear in our previous section that that wasn't benefiting everybody. Matter of fact, it was very questionable whether it was even benefiting the one praying, but it certainly wasn't benefiting anyone that was listening. And so since it didn't benefit everybody, it should be avoided in corporate worship. But then he gets to prophecy, and you see we read something about that. Prophecy, on the other hand, was a gift that was given to edify believers. It proclaimed God's truth or scriptural truth, if you prefer, before it was written down, and therefore was was a benefit to everybody that was in attendance and should be prioritized 
in worship. Prophecy actually was also beneficial to unbelievers who were present in worship as they would witness this and they would see, according to Paul here, that God is at work in this place. They would see something of God through the revelation of God that was given in prophecy. So, whether it was the legitimate function of tongues or prophecy, the loving thing to do was to function with these gifts in an orderly way. Not with everybody speaking at the same time. You know, I love to watch uh, these news programs. I love to listen to talk radio. But what I don't like is when they get these panels together, and there may be five people on the panel, you know what I'm going to say, and they all start talking at once. Because maybe when I was 14, I could have picked it all out, but not now. My ear can't pick out everybody talking at once now. Most of your ears can't pick that out either, and it becomes nonsense. And I know on one network that I happen to listen to quite a bit, watch in the afternoons when I get home, I can tell that somebody at the top has told them to stop that. Because when they all start speaking at once, whoever the moderator is, shuts it down and it goes back to one person speaking at a time. So that I might be benefited by what they're saying. If I can't figure out what they're saying, it does me no good to watch it. I may as well turn it off and go do something else. Same thing in a church service. If there were people talking back here and talking over here, maybe some people praying over here and some people back here burning incense and some people singing right over here, we'd all have a hard time concentrating. But you know that there are worship services out there like that now? It's postmodern worship. The emerging church is what it's called. Now, not every emergent church is that way, but a lot of them are. It's just kind of do your own thing. It's kind of like Burger King way back. Have it your way. Well, I know that's a neat idea in some context. And I liked having it my own way. That's why I ate at Burger King more than McDonald's because I didn't want all the other stuff on it. They would make it exactly how I wanted it. But church is not designed to be that way because we all get together corporately. There needs to be some structure. We need to have a goal and a purpose for being here in the first place. Did you think of that, about that before you came today? What was your purpose in coming? What was your goal in traveling? Some of you an hour, some of you a lot more than that to be here today. I hope it was, first and foremost, to have an experience where we glorified God, where we gathered together with other believers and lifted our voices and lifted our thoughts to God as one and glorified Him. I hope that's what you were thinking today. And you know what else I hope? I hope that your life was organized enough. And if it wasn't last week, let's look at it, this, this, do it next week. But I hope it was organized enough that last night, or even earlier in the week when you, were, when you were planning your Saturday, you said, hey, listen, to whoever you were going to go out with that night, or maybe something you had planned to do, you said, listen, I've got church the next day. I want to make sure I'm in by X hour, so I can get enough sleep. You know, I hope, if, if you're like me, you, you, you check with the cleaners. Look, I want to make sure I've got a shirt to wear, so when the cleaner says, I can get it to you next Monday, I said, well, no, I really kind of need it by Saturday afternoon, because I've got church the next day. You see, that's what I mean by order and structure in our lives before we ever get here. I'm thinking about going on a trip next year. I haven't even told Cindy about it. I've kind of alluded to it because I want the build-up to be something special. But I tell you what, one of the things I'm going to do when it comes to that trip, I'm going to start planning it seriously probably about December or January of this year. I'm going to block off time. And then I'm going to work on getting somebody to help me with the tickets and saving up the money and all the things that I need to do. And you know what else I'm going to do? I'm going to get maps out. 
have a whole bunch of maps of the region that I'm going to go to, and I'm going to plot out the places that I'd like to go and that I'd like to see. I'm going to look into the rental car. I'm going to take steps, just like Dad did a long time ago when he marked off that 50 yards in front of my grandma's house and took out his Timex and timed me and said, okay, today we're going to do 10 wind sprints, and you're going to go 75 yards tomorrow instead of 50 so we can build up your nerves. And all the things you have to do to organize yourself around accomplishing a goal. I know some Christians don't like the whole ideas of, idea of goals. Goals are not wrong. There's nothing wrong with goals at all. It's just a matter of what your goal is. I hope your goal in life is to glorify God with whatever time he gives you. And if that's the case, then we need to organize our lives around that procedure. Now, I've just given you the, the organization around corporate worship. But corporate worship is no better than our individual worship all week. We need to organize every day around our worship of God. I know that's not what most of us do. Most of us organize every day around making sure we earn enough money that we can get to tomorrow. In other words, we organize our day around our work or if we're a homemaker, which is one of the hardest occupations, that the hardest working occupations that you could possibly have. You, know, you have to organize around how I'm going to get the kids taken care of that day. Well, all that's good. But I'm going to propose to you right now that we organize our day around our individual worship. When I wake up in the morning, I should have thought of the day before, when am I going to get some Bible reading in tomorrow? When am I going to have my prayer time? And you block that off just like you block off those 8 or 10 or 12 hours that you block off for work. That's what this section is all about. So many times we get wrapped up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 33 on the whole idea of tongues and prophecy. And we miss the whole thing. And then we walk out of here and say, well, look, he said the tongues and prophecy weren't for today anyway. What was the point of even listening to that? Here's the point. The point is we ought to have organized worship services. That's the point. That God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace or harmony. As in all the churches of the saints, that all things that should be done in a worship service should be done for edification. For everybody present. That's what a worship service is. To wrap this up, we have presented previously that there's good evidence that tongues and prophecy were partial revelatory gifts that faded out after the completion and the circulation of the scriptures. So, in addition to the things that I mentioned about organizing our life, is there anything else that we might leave here with today so that we might be edified by this passage? I think there are. There are three. We must expel all that reeks of selfishness from our lives. Every single bit of it. We can't function in selfishness all week long and then expect to come together on Sundays and turn love on like a light switch. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. It's our calling to pursue love individually throughout the week and then continue with that love during periods of corporate worship. And yes, that means... You can't have a fight all the way to church with your husband or wife and expect to come into church and have a God-honoring, fulfilling worship service that day. Now, you know how we're going to have great worship services on Sunday mornings? Is this, that if all of us begin, as soon as we leave here, expelling selfishness from our lives in all of our interpersonal relationships with our spouses and with our friends and with our kids, we've got to start pursuing love in every aspect of life all week long. And then when we come here, it won't be something different. It'll just be an extension of what we've already been doing. When we consider the highest and the best for somebody else, 
and leave all selfishness behind. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we must remember that there's no such thing as me-centered, God-honoring worship. All worship has to be God-centered, God-honoring. And finally, in summary once again, God-honoring worship will be focused upon God with a view toward the building up of all of those in attendance and take place in an environment of harmony and structure, not confusion and disorder. 